I have consented to give it in as brief a method as I can master. But in attempting to do so, strange indeed are my feelings, fellow soldiers, as I about face to review the past. I again hear the tap of the drum that sounded in the little village of Athens, Fayette County, for volunteers in the winter of 1813, just upon the excitement of Winchester's defeat. I again hear the voice of my captain, Archibald Morrison, and see the faces of my fellow volunteers as they fall in line. Salutations are being received upon every side, and the din of innumerable familiar voices were long since hushed, and those faces we will see no more this side of the grave. My father's goodbye, my boy, my mother's blessings and tears all pass in review before me now. Soon my loose, warm jeans roundabout seems to be my most protecting friend. As our rendezvous at Lexington has been far in the rear, and we are upon the first Well, hello, and welcome to the Foot of the Rapids, a history podcast of stories from the War of 1812. And those opening words were by Private Thomas Christian of Kentucky. And hopefully that's how this little show will always go, using diary entries, memoirs, letters home, to relate basic ideas in the story of the war and the era. So we will not be dissecting battlefield tactics or analyzing overarching political theory, but more down-to-earth themes that we all share in common, like cold feet, punishment, alcohol, death, worrisome mothers. This plans to be more like a story hour than a dissertation. And since we will be using diary entries from the early 19th century, I should say our 21st century ears may take slight offense to some of their language. They were less tolerant in ideas of diversity, race, and religion. So, disclaimer forward, we still hope you find this meaningful, heartful, and a worthy source of historical interest and information. In the preface to his book, Men of Patriotism, Courage, and Enterprise, Larry Nelson wrote, The War of 1812 was a conflict of global proportion and international impact. And yet, in a study of this nature, it is the human element which reveals itself most clearly. Here we perceive an emotional dimension standing in crisp relief that in studies of a larger scale tends to lose definition and focus. We feel the loneliness and sense of frustration of life in a frontier garrison. We share the terror of a lonely watch on a darkened night. We fear for the safety of comrades. 
we rejoice in victory and lament in defeat. So, using that as a compass course, we will proceed. My name is John. Welcome again to the Foot of the Rapids. We might as well start from the beginning, the beginning of the war that is. Both the American and British armies were woefully unprepared for the declaration of war in June 1812. Britain was locked in a death grip with France and most of their veteran troops were occupied in Europe. While there was a scattering of various companies and locally raised continental troops, there was really only one full-strength British regiment in Canada at the time, the 41st Regiment of Foot, and spread over a very large geographic area. Similarly, the American army was extremely small and under strength. The United States had not yet set up the production capacity to mass produce new weapons and uniforms right away. And their leadership, all aged relics left over from the revolution. It is amazing the American government was as confident as it was in its ambitions towards Canada in its grand strategy for the war. It was clear by the end of summer 1812 what needed to come next in the war effort was men. And this episode will be about recruitment. An address to men of patriotism, courage, and enterprise. Every able-bodied man from the age of 18 to 45 years who shall be enlisted for the Army of the United States for a term of five years will be paid a bounty of $16 and $5 per month. And whenever he shall have served the term for which he enlisted and obtained an honorable discharge, stating that he had faithfully performed his duty whilst in service, he shall be allowed and paid, in addition to the aforesaid bounty, three months pay and 160 acres of land. And in case he should be killed in action, or die in the service, his heirs and representatives will be entitled to the said three months pay and 160 acres of land to be designated, surveyed, and laid off at the public expense. To those who prefer enlisting for 18 months, the same pay and bounty will be allowed except the lands. Apply to T.E. Danielson, second lieutenant, U.S. Army. This last excerpt, taken from a broadside printed and distributed by Lieutenant Danielson, is a bit of a mantra for us, the staff at Fort Megs, and it finds its way into much of the media we produce. It's well said. We also heard there, a bit in the background, a popular recruiting song from the era. Let's take a closer listen to that, this time with just one fife and one field drum, just as you might have heard it on a street corner of a small American or Canadian town.
the recruiting officer's march, which would have been appropriate to play at the opening of the enlistment offices each day. Musicians actually play an extremely crucial role in recruitment, and officers were encouraged or ordered to take musicians with them into communities for that purpose. If the regiments were small or new and had no musicians yet available, recruiting officers were permitted to hire local musicians from the town to act in concert with them. The Army authorized these temporary specialists to be paid a whopping $16 a month for their services, fully double what a common soldier would be paid. So important were they viewed in their contribution of filling the ranks. As one might imagine, musicians were sent in ahead of time and began playing in the town square or a busy street corner. The novelty of a live musical act would undoubtedly draw a crowd of onlookers come for entertainment. And once the gathering reached a suitable size, up popped the recruiting officer with a captured audience and began his pleas and appeals to their patriotism and manhood. A sergeant of the United States Army, under the authority of the government, made his appearance in Paulette, beating up for recruits. My youthful mind was fired with ardor in anticipation of a soldier's career. The pomp and splendor of a military life were vividly portrayed in my foolish imagination and produced a desire to engage in the service, which was not to be relinquished. My father consented to abandon me to vicissitudes and vices and dangers of a life of war for an uncertain length of time. It might be only a few months or it might continue for many years. My excellent and affectionate mother had hitherto concealed her anxiety for my welfare and the pain she felt in anticipation of her bereavement in the loss of her oldest son. For she has since informed me that she would rather have seen me decently buried than go into the army. I only wanted a few months of 14 years of age and yet, young as I was, the recruiting officer had no objection to me as a musician. Nay, he seemed quite desirous of securing me. Probably he would have refused to give me a place in the ranks as a private under the burdens of a heavy musket. Those were the memories of young Jarvis Hanks from upstate New York. And with his statements and the information proceeding, we've heard a great number of references to recruiting officers. Let's hear from a recruiter straight away. I commenced business at once, went right in among the boys, and was one of them. There were three other recruiting officers in the place who were very clever gentlemen, but I recruited more men than all three of them. They would ask me how it was that I got more men than they, as they worked as hard as they could. I had become acquainted with the citizens of the place and had made a rather favorable impression for industry, correct habits, and fairness in my recruiting. I took no advantage, nor would I suffer my recruiting party to take any. I enlisted no man while he was under the influence of liquor, but took him to my quarters, treated him well, gave him breakfast in the morning, and then if he wished to enlist, I brought him up, gave him the bounty, and he would sign the enlistment be sworn in and feel perfectly satisfied. This was not the case with other recruiting parties. 
I will cite one case that occurred with my party. They got a man from the country in tow one day who was rather fond of his liquor. And towards evening, he got pretty drunk and went to enlist. They came along where I was and told me they had a recruit. Boys, said I, he is too drunk to enlist now. Take him to the barracks and keep him until morning and then bring him up to me and I will talk with him. They did so. He was then sober. I asked him his name, where he lived, if he was a married man, how many children he had, all of which he told me. I then said to him, do you want to go into the army and leave your little helpless family? He promptly answered, no. And the tears began to run down his cheeks. And he said, it all depends on you. If you will let me go home, I will promise you that I will never be caught in that condition again. I told him that it was fortunate for him that he fell in with my party. Had he fallen into other hands, there would have been no questions asked and he would have been hurried off. But I said to him, you may now go home and stay there and take care of your family and don't run after these recruiting parties. He was overjoyed and said he and his wife would pray for my good fortune and even teach his children to pray for me. In a few days, his wife called on me and kindly thanked me for discharging her husband, John Cochran. Military enlistments skyrocketed after the twin disasters of the Fort Dearborn massacre in Illinois and the surrender of Detroit in the Michigan Territory, both coming a day apart in the month of August, 1812. Desires for revenge and feelings of sadness, rage, and patriotism swelled. Robert McCaffrey summed the sentiments writing just after the war, how low must we estimate the civilization of those who could court the alliance of these barbarians in war, at the same time knowing, encouraging, and proclaiming to the world their ruthless mode of warfare, and paying them a graduated price for the scalps of men, women, and children? And what kind of American is he, let me ask, who can defend and justify the conduct of the British government when all these transactions are known and well authenticated to him. Alfred Lorraine of Virginia. When the news of Hull's surrender reached the patriotic town of Petersburg in Virginia, it overwhelmed the whole population with indignation and sorrow. Some of the most popular young men with martial music and the American ensign paraded the streets and with impassioned peals called on their youthful associates to march to the rescue. The scene that followed was soul thrilling to the Patriot. Promising young men sprung their counters and fell into the ranks. Students of medicine and law shoved aside their volumes, sufficiently uninteresting before but now made absolutely irksome by the ceaseless din of war and rush to the standard. The mechanic threw the uplifted hammer from his hand to swell the train. The placid farmer rode to town to behold the madness of the people, but took the epidemic and fell in. 
And in a few days, a company of 104 richly uniformed offered themselves to the government to serve 12 months under the banner of the brave Harrison. No married man was admitted into the ranks. There is no incident of merely a terrene nature that ever so swelled our bosoms as did our departure from that lovely town, the bright scene of all our juvenile joys. There, they were met by a procession of women, while two elect ladies bearing a stand of colors richly and tastefully ornamented presented them to the company with an appropriate address. Being now all ready with our knapsacks on our backs and all accoutred for the perilous campaign, we marched down through the town to the plaintive tune of the girl I left behind me. Recruiting officers fanned out across the territories in search of capable men. According to regulations, only those between the ages of 18 and 45 who passed the physical exam would be accepted. No restrictions were made for height so long as the individual was strong, healthy, and well-made. As we've heard, there was a bounty of two months' pay for enlisting. But a soldier did not join the regular army to get rich. Private soldiers could expect to earn $8 a month, about half the amount for a migrant farm worker or day laborer from the time. By enlisting for five years or the duration of the war, a soldier would receive 160 acres of free land. Roughly 80% chose this longer service. The land grant is an interesting bonus. The United States government was bartering with the only real source of wealth it had, land. With the Treaty of Paris ending the American Revolution, 1783, the new United States came into a vast swath of real estate known as the Northwest Territory, roughly the Great Lakes region of the current U.S. And with the Northwest Ordinance, 1787, had determined how this land could be broken up for settlement and territorial inclusion. Selling parcels to prospective newcomers would be a rare income source for the fledgling national government. Never mind the territory was already occupied by a richly diverse civilization well entrenched for thousands of years, which of course would be a major cause in the coming of the war to begin with. But for a young, poor, white American family, 160 acres could be the best and greatest thing you might do to secure a future for yourselves. And if a soldier died in the service of his nation, the land grant was promised to his wife and surviving heirs. The ranks continued to swell. In the early part of the month, I left my rude home in the midst of the woods, Mercer County, Pennsylvania. 
I left my old father, mother, and two sisters without a protector. But they cheered me on saying, go for your country and may God bless you. This was their last united benediction. The second day after I left home, I arrived at the then barracks and reported. I was an entire stranger, was just out of the woods, had very little education, had never been in company of the class I was thrown into, but I had sense enough to know my deficiencies and that saved me many a blunder. I looked on and said but little and took in everything, for I was determined to learn and I soon found that there were others as green as I was. And that gave me confidence. John Cochran. Many others chose to serve in state militias or volunteer companies. In the militia system, men could expect to serve with others they likely knew from their communities. They elected their own officers and enlistments could be short, perhaps 30 days to several months together. A common stereotype portrayed the militia soldier as unprofessional and undisciplined on duty and in the field or even unpatriotic dregs. However, both armies depended on them to carry out campaigns, defend forts, and mobilize the supply chains. Volunteer companies like the Petersburg Volunteers we heard of earlier, or the Pittsburgh Blues, afforded a sturdier reputation. These were often composed of men who enjoyed, modeled, or idolized the military life for recreation, more like popular fraternal orders of the time. These units were often much better clad and equipped, observed a proud sense of discipline, and could commit to much longer stretches of service, perhaps a solid year under the standard. So far, we have only really looked at the American side of manpower, but there are two other factions to uncover in order to tell a complete story, the British and American Indians. The mighty British Empire had been at war so long that one might imagine military service seemed like a way of life for Britons. Indeed, looking at many diaries and letters of the time, most redcoats make no big drama out of signing up. It all seems rather matter of fact. But we know the empire suffered manpower shortages, particularly in the Royal Navy. Press gangs continued to scour port towns and the British merchant fleet had been crippled as the Crown recalled sailors for naval assignments. Seamen claiming to be Americans were pressed into service aboard their ships, escalating the tensions between America and the United Kingdom as the 19th century got a good decade behind itself. One story even tells of an American being pressed into land service. Sergeant Alfred Brunson. The following day, the prisoners from the HMS Detroit were landed, some of whom I became familiar with, and especially with one midshipman, from whom I learned some facts and incidents of the war. This midshipman was born in the United States, but happened to get married at Amherstburg and was staying there when the war broke out. He was a sergeant in a volunteer company previous to the war, but intended to escape back to the States if war should occur. That before he knew of it, he was warned out of bed and pressed into the service and so closely watched he could not make his escape. Being a sergeant, he took his turn in being orderly for General Brock and was so when he landed at Spring Wells, three miles below Detroit. 
For recruitment among American Indian warriors, we need look no further than its most celebrated figure from this conflict, the Shawnee war chief Tecumseh. The Shawnee are an Ohio people, but Tecumseh was constantly on the move and seemingly everywhere, from west to the Mississippi, to the south down in Alabama and Georgia land. And his message spread north, far north of the Illinois country. This message to return to traditional ways, to align and shuck off the dependence on white trade goods, gifts, and empty promises. He, along with his brother, Tenskawatawa, were largely responsible for creating the community that would oppose the United States in the war. This duo covered many profound bases of native culture. Tecumseh, a war chief, and his brother, a religious leader, could appeal to and squeeze from two ends of native communities to embrace this opposition. After the Battle of Tippecanoe in November 1811 and the destruction of their capital city at Prophetstown, American Indians looked more and more to the British base at Fort Malden for support, gifts, and sanctuary. The American Indians had been fighting Europeans and Americans over land rights and incursions for over 60 years in the Northwest. So the War of 1812 doesn't really have a beginning for them the way whites see a declaration of war. But this would be just one more chapter in a very long saga of warfare stretching back decades. And sadly, as we will see, this will be the final chapter of that saga. And many might have known that this was their very last chance at securing some kind of safe, everlasting homeland. In Canada, with war looming and few British regulars for protection, mobilizing domestic forces was deemed necessary and the Canadian Militia Act was heavily amended in the spring of 1812. The act specified that all able-bodied of-age men should give six days out of each month for drill. It also declared that two flank companies be made of each battalion. These flank companies would be the first employed in field service and outfitted by the British Army and could be marched anywhere in the entire province. In case of war, the government was authorized to call out by conscription 2,000 men for service up to two years. The militia were to have the same pay and allowances as the Redcoats, and substitutes could not be purchased. Recruitment for the famed corps of Les Voitezieux, French Canadians, read as follows. This corps, now under the command of Major de Salaberry, is completing with dispatch worthy of the ancient warlike spirit of the country. Captain Peralt's company was filled up in 48 hours, and the companies of Captain Duchesne, Panay, and Eckire have very near their complement. The young men moved in solid columns towards the enlisting officers, with an expression of countenance not to be mistaken. The Canadians are awakening from the repose of an age secured to them by good government and virtuous habits. Their anger is fresh, the object of their preparations simple and distinct. They are to defend their king and a native country long since made sacred by the exploits of their forefathers. And John Beverly Robinson corroborates this by saying, 
Under the new Militia Act of 1812, flank companies were formed in each battalion of men who volunteered for active service in case of war. And a Mr. Allen became captain of one of these companies, in which I and most of the young gentlemen of the town were enrolled as privates. The Attorney General, McDonnell, with whom I was a student, went upon General Brock's staff. As the prospects of invasion came nearer and we were taken into garrison, we became soldiers for a time. Recruitment all over North America would continue into 1813 and 1814, as enlistments expired and men went home, or soldiers died from grievous battle wounds or passed away in their sick beds. These fighting men needed to be replaced. We will see all factions struggle to keep their armies full and powerful as war weariness grew into the third year. But this is another tale for another time. I've occupied you enough for today. We'll see you again. Thanks for listening. Huzzah!